0: Good morning. We know we have several who are visiting with us uh, pretty much every week, and we want you to know how glad we are that you're here. Uh, Whatever has brought you to we're we're thankful. We hope we get to spend a little bit of time getting to know you this morning, and we hope that you'll come back every opportunity you have. If this is your first time visiting a church of Christ and you're wondering why things are a little bit different during our worship, we would absolutely love to sit down and answer those questions and open up our Bibles with you and and study. So please let us know if you have any questions or spiritual needs uh, that we can help you with this morning. We appreciate uh, gifts lesson last week. uh, It was really a difficult lesson for me. I probably grumble more than I should. And it's changed the past week of my life, and I hope that it has yours as well. So I'm grateful to Gif for the good message that he presented based on the Israelites' grumbling uh, that we see in the Old Testament. And certainly we do the same thing today. We need to be careful. This morning, maybe uh, let's begin by sort of noticing something that I have noticed. One of the most difficult parts of life, especially for us right now, is keeping things cleaned up. Anybody else have that issue? Uh, if you don't, we can let you borrow a few children and uh, you can be reminded of that. But whether it's uh, the, the rooms or the playroom or uh, maybe it's a, a vehicle or maybe it just has nothing to do with people. Maybe it's just your yard that grows while you watch it these days because of all of this rain that we're very thankful for. But you, you might have noticed that you can't just send your kids or you, you can't just go to the yard with your lawnmower and clean these things up one time and be done. You just can't, can you? I remember when we moved into our home here in Montgomery, the, the former owner walked me around the yard. and it's a, There's a lot of things going on in this yard. Most of them have died since I took over. Uh, but he said, uh, he could see my face like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And he said, yeah, it's a lifestyle. And uh, it may have been his lifestyle, but uh, it's, it's my lifestyle to mow it and to make it look nice, but most of those flowers uh, did, did not make it because they require so much maintenance. Our kids have rooms upstairs, they share a playroom, and they can all be spotless at 4.30 p.m. And by 4.35, they're not. And so you realize really quickly, uh, depending on your personality, Maybe this bothers you, maybe it doesn't bother you, but would we agree that this is kind of a fact of life, that most things that we use or that naturally grow or that we live in or with, they need maintenance. They need constant care and repair and cleaning up. And in some ways, I believe this reminds us, and maybe it's intentional, that it reminds us of the broken nature of the world that we live in and and the brokenness of us as people and our constant need for maintenance and repair. Do you ever feel this way spiritually, that that, that you thought everything was going well or you thought you were really close with God or you're really strong and then all of a sudden you find yourself in need of, of help? We have been studying a series called We Are Israel And we're going back into the Old Testament and looking at the the lives of God's people under the Old Covenant. And we're looking for some things that can help us. And this morning, I'd like to turn our attention to a word uh, called deliverance. I'd like to talk about deliverance this morning. And I'd like to take a look at three separate situations uh, this morning that we can learn from. The first two of those situations are from the history of of the Israelites, two different points in their history. And then that third situation will be you and I today in our modern uh, situation. So the first thing that I'd like for us to notice is the situation in Exodus chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, that we might call from guests to slaves. We're talking about God's people in Egypt. And you know the story that... They were there for some 430 years altogether. And eventually, during that period of time, probably around 100 years or so into that stay in Egypt, they were put into oppressive bondage. And I want you to remember, though, that we did not start out that way, did we? The the Israelites did not start out as slaves. They did not start out... In bondage. In fact, they started out with what we might call the red carpet treatment. They started out as as honored guests in the land of Egypt, and you remember the story that God had made Joseph a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so Joseph's family was literally welcomed in with with prestige and pomp and privilege when they got to Egypt. Pharaoh said, come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. When Joseph's family moved to Egypt during this famine, if you remember, they were greeted as honored guests. They were treated with privilege and respect Pharaoh even said, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pretty amazing welcome, wouldn't you say? If you were welcomed somewhere like this, it would be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? It would make you feel pretty good about yourself. They were given new wagons, provisions, clothes, Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey to Egypt. Genesis 45 beginning in verse 21. You remember, there were 70 people who made this journey. Part of Joseph's family, his father, his brothers, and their families. And Pharaoh just welcomes them and says, This is your land. Settle in the best parts of the land and put your people in charge of the livestock if you want to. Chapter 47, verse 6. Why would Pharaoh do this? Well, you remember why Pharaoh would do this because Joseph has literally just saved Egypt, right? Joseph, because of his interpretation of a dream that Pharaoh has had, has literally saved Egypt. They had seven years of plenty, but now they're having seven years of famine and they're ready for that because of Joseph. And Joseph is about to make Pharaoh very, very rich. He probably has very uh, kind and warm feelings for Joseph also, but he's certainly going to make him very rich. The Egyptians in the, in the remaining years of this famine are going to spend all of their money, chapter 47, verse 14 and 15. They're going to have to trade in their livestock, finally their land, if you read through the rest of that chapter, to pay for the food that Joseph and Pharaoh have stored up for this famine. Now when Joseph and his family gets to Egypt, Jacob, his father, or Israel as he's now known, lives another 17 years, blesses his sons, and then he dies. If you do a little bit of math, and I won't bore you with all of that, you understand that that Joseph lived in Egypt 71 years with his family after his father died. When his father died... Pharaoh and his people went to bury him. It was a great, big uh, event. And so you, un- you get this understanding when you look at the entrance that Joseph and his family had into Egypt, it was, it was quite prestigious. If we could use some of the things that we, we gave examples, of, the rooms are all clean. The yard is mowed and freshly trimmed every day. And, and it seems like somebody's just taking care of those things for us, right? But, it changed into a ruthless oppression as we've already noted. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8 that there arose a new king in, over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He did not know Joseph. He did not remember uh, what Joseph had done for the Egyptians. He didn't appreciate what Joseph meant to this country. He didn't uh, care perhaps. Perhaps about Joseph and his family. And so what happens is, from this point forward, we see a series of events unfold where Joseph and his family, uh, or his family at least, his descendants, are no longer very welcome in this particular place. So we start with with a, a red carpet treatment, and then we end with this ruthless oppression. And here's kind of how it went down. If you have your Bible open it up to Exodus chapter 1 and let's start around verse 9 and let's notice the cycle here, the the chain of events that leads to this ruthless oppression. And, And all of this is going to pay off, if you will, in just a few minutes. The first thing you see in verses 9 and 10 is you see some fear. Read that with me. And he said to his people, this is the Pharaoh, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. So the host of the Israelites is starting to feel afraid. and starting to feel threatened. And in case something goes wrong, he doesn't want this visiting group of people to have the upper hand And so that fear leads to an affliction or an oppression in verse 11. Therefore, because of that fear, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built, the Israelites at least, built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. Now how do you think this went over? You've been welcomed into Egypt and you've been there for several decades and all of a sudden, somebody knocks on your front door and says, hey, we're going to work today, and you're going to do all the work. Well, I don't know how that went over, but I do know that the Bible uses the word shrewdly here. This was done very shrewdly, not all at once, not in a way that would scare anybody off, but, but before you know it, maybe they, they came and said, listen, you've been here a long time, you're not Egyptians, we really need you to pitch in. You know, be good Egyptians and and, and build us something. Do something to show how grateful you are that we've allowed you to stay in this land, the best parts of the land, for as long as we have. Maybe that's how it started out. I don't know, but it led to some affliction and some oppression. It changed the relationship, I think would be safe to say. All of a sudden, somebody realizes maybe these uh, people are not happy and glad that we're around. And it's interesting because Pharaoh admits something in these verses uh, that's, that's very important. He admits that Israel is too many and too mighty for him, and yet he becomes the oppressor. Did you notice that? These people are too many. There's too many of them. They're too powerful for us, so I am going to lord power over them. The one with less power is wielding it over the group of people who have more power. Isn't that interesting? We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Does this work? No, it doesn't work. Verse 12 says, The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So this did not work. And this creates dread. This creates a really deep-seated fear of the Israelites. And notice again, the ruthless people who are holding the whips are terrified Of the people they're whipping. Because they know at any point. This group of people who is more than they are. And mightier than they are. Can turn around and say hold on a second. Why are you holding the whip? Give me that. And they can turn this all around. And the Egyptians would be in big trouble. And they know that. And so this is a really shrewd thing. And a really gradual thing. And a really pernicious thing. Thing that's happening to the Israelites. They afflict them with ruthlessness and hard service. Look at verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So this got much, much worse. And if you keep reading in this chapter, it gets a lot worse. And it gets to the point where we're just going to start killing your children when they're born. Because we're so afraid of what's going to happen if we don't. This oppressive and ruthless slavery lasted for hundreds of years and you can imagine the demoralizing effect that it had on God's people. So how did this happen? And Why did this happen? Why did Israel allow this to happen? And maybe more importantly, why did God allow this to happen to His people? Why did it last so long? I don't know all the answers to all of those questions. But I do know that this is a story of deliverance, isn't it? This is a story that's leading up to, and you know the rest of it, it's leading up to these people marching out of Egypt under the mighty hand of God, right? God is going to make it very clear, you don't have any power over me. You may have duped my people for a few hundred years, but when I'm ready for them to leave, they're going to leave. I'm going to deliver them with a mighty hand. And that's what happened. But as we've seen throughout this series, and you'll see it again next week, do the Israelites stay delivered? Do they stay in this cleaned up, straightened up relationship with their God? Certainly not. You see, it's kind of a roller coaster, isn't it? That the story of deliverance is an ongoing story. Let's look at situation number two, and let's fast forward about 1,400 years to a situation that I think is, is kind of similar, and that's God's people in the first century under Roman oppression, Roman rule. Certainly not as rigorous and not as violent, and, and, and nobody's turned anybody into the kind of slaves that they had done in Egypt. But we're in a similar situation in some respects. One Jewish writer said it like this, For the ordinary people of the Jewish homeland, Rome was a kind of dominant political factor. Although they might not have seen the Romans on a day-to-day basis, the imposition of Roman power was certainly there. Everyone knew that Rome was the power behind Herod's throne. So the reality of the day was a dominant power overseeing the lives of the Jewish people on a day-to-day basis. So we're back here again. We're under the thumb of someone else. And did we just end up there? Or can we trace this particular bondage back to a better time? Well, I think that we can certainly do that. We might go, for example, back to the golden age of Israel's history. You remember this? This is what historians and scholars might call it. The Bible doesn't. But during the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon, especially Solomon, Israel was at the height of their power. They were united, they were strong, they were faithful, they prospered militarily, they prospered financially in almost every way that you can imagine. They were the the world's greatest superpower. The 40 years of, of Solomon's rule witnessed the realizations, one Jewish writer says, of all our goals, the completion of all our projects, the fruition of all our efforts. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, governs in a way that brings glory to this group of people. Now, does this last? Does the golden age just go on and on and on indefinitely? Absolutely not. The golden age turns into what we might call a revolving cage. Because during Solomon's reign, the seeds are planted that begin a downward spiral of idolatry and captivity and unfaithfulness in more and more need for deliverance. Whether you're talking about uh, the, the twelve tribes splitting into two tribes, that's sort of where it begins. Or whether you're talking about these strings of mostly evil kings, who, who pretty much just do nothing but, but bring false gods in and turn their back on the one true God. It's just one mistake and one problem after the next. After these kings, they go into captivity. They they come back. They try to rebuild. There's an intertestamental period between 300 and 164 B.C. where they're invaded and ruled by the Greeks. And then come around 60 B.C., the Romans take over and, and here we are again. From the red carpet treatment to the ruthless oppression. From the golden age to Roman rule. How did this happen again? How how have God's people allowed this to happen? Why has God allowed this to happen to His people? Again, I don't know. But I do know it continues to be a story of deliverance. Over and over and over again. So when it comes to you and I today, the third situation that I'd like for us to admit is is we are in the same situation. We're in the same situation. We go from, I'm okay with God. I'm, I'm good with God. I've got my life cleaned up. I've been forgiven of my sins. We go from that to some point in life when we are definitely not okay and we know it. And if you, you haven't gone through this, and you just haven't been a Christian very long, but if you've been a Christian very long, you understand that we are Israel. We are always in a cycle of being delivered by God and getting ourselves back into a position where we need to be delivered by God again. Don't we do that? You know, the Bible teaches that those of us who are, who are Christians, we can fall back into bad patterns, can't we? For those of us who have been Christians very long, how many times have you had to clean up your room or mow your yard? The idea, and listen to this very carefully if you're not a Christian, the idea that becoming a Christian is a one-time transaction that fixes our lives forever, that's not any more possible than to send my kids up to the playroom one good time and be done with it. It's just not possible. It's not the way that it works. I wonder how many times you and I have come to that point. Maybe you're at that point this morning where you are no longer certain about your identity in Christ. You no longer feel confidence or assurance or purpose. You no longer exhibit the the same commitment to Christ that you once did. We look at our lives and we realize slowly but surely we are Israel and we have allowed ourselves to go right back into bondage. It's our nature to some extent, isn't it? To be delivered and to allow bondage to creep back in and take over our lives. Can this still happen? Can comfort and acceptance and wealth and strength still lead God's people into slavery just as it did for Israel all throughout their history? Absolutely. Is it still possible that after being adopted into and called into God's family through our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we fall back, maybe gradually, maybe it's done shrewdly, but we fall back into the slavery of sin? Bible says, yes, that's possible. In fact, if you look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 6, around verses 4 through 8, they, they, they talk about those who had once been enlightened, those who had tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have what? Fallen away. They, they had the red carpet rolled out for them. They were in the golden age of life. They've been delivered by God and they have fallen away from that. They have allowed themselves to get right back into the kind of life that got them into trouble in the first place. What really happened in Egypt? Let's dig just a little bit deeper. What really happened? How, How did God's people allow this to happen? Again, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But it seems like it took an awfully long time for them to call out to God for help. If you read how this story plays out in the book of Exodus, it seems to have taken them hundreds of years to realize, you know what, we probably need to ask God for help. Because when they did, God delivered big time. So maybe they got too comfortable or too dependent, or they had conversations around their family's dinner table and said, well, we really don't need to stay here, but if we go anywhere, what what are we going to do? I'm scared. I'm scared of of blazing a new trail. I'm scared of the unknown. Maybe that's how it happened. What really happened during the time of the kings? How did we go from from the golden age to, to a revolving cage? How did that really happen? Well, we're going to talk more about this next month. But if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, you can tell what really happened. God's people rejected him as their king. And from that point forward, it didn't really matter who the king was, did it? Because when you reject me as your king, God would say, you're doomed. You are on a downward spiral that leads you back into bondage because I'm the only king you can trust. And God's people deliberately and knowingly did that, didn't they? That's what really happened. So whether you're talking about Egypt or whether you're talking about uh, the golden age of of Israel's history, they are known for being delivered by God and then completely turning their back on Him. And I just got to be honest with you, I am known for the same thing. I don't want anybody else to know about it most of the time. But don't you struggle with the exact same thing? That God brings you out with a mighty hand from the sin in your life and He, he delivers you from it? And then what do we do? We get right back into it, don't we? Or we find another one that, that looks appealing. And, and we turn our back on Him and we start worshiping other things. What really happened when you became a Christian? Think about it, when you were delivered by God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ for that first time, what happened? What happened in your life? Because you were really and truly and completely delivered, weren't you? That really did happen. You were saved, you were washed clean of your sins. The Bible tells us that in several different places. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 being maybe the most famous. But you know, we can still choose, either consciously or, or be deceived into doing this, to submit ourselves again to that same slavery, even as Christians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. I would imagine that most of us here this morning probably grew up in, in a religious home, probably grew up in the church, and maybe we just spent so little time being lost Maybe there was just such a short period of our time that we were actually lost before we obeyed the gospel that we just missed some things about that. We just missed the dangers of sin and the deceptive nature of sin because we became Christians and were delivered at such a young age. I don't know. But go back to that deliverance that God gave you when you obeyed the gospel. What did you really want then? What were you really seeking from Him when you obeyed the gospel and you gave your life to Him? And what do you want now? How has your relationship with God changed between that day that you gave your life to Him and today? Have we forgotten the the diabolical and deceptive nature of sin? Have we become so proud that we think that can't happen to us? That we think we can't be lured and enticed by our own desires and that that sin, when it's conceived, won't still bring forth the same kind of death that it brought forth for God's people all along? Have we been lulled into sin because of our half-hearted approach towards God? That's usually how it happens. Have we fallen in love with Egypt? Did we almost immediately replace the God that delivered us with a king in our own lives, so that we could be a little bit more in charge? Have we settled, as the Israelites certainly did in numerous occasions, to be God's people in name only? To be disguised as God's people, but in our hearts, be as far away from Him as we could possibly be, like Jesus once said to the Pharisees. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you have confidence and assurance and faith that God is present in your life? Are you clinging to some form of religion, hoping that that will save you, or are you cultivating a faithful relationship with God? You know, our lives, if we're being honest, are are all stories of deliverance. Like me, if you're a Christian this morning here, you, you are in a constant need for more deliverance, aren't you? We don't have to go back and obey the gospel again. That's a one-time thing. But from that point forward, we've got to walk in the light. And when we stumble out of that light, we've, we've got to be delivered from that. We've got to be cleansed from that. We've got to confess that sin, right? Right? Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24. Paul struggled mightily with sin. And sometimes he said he didn't even feel like it was him making the decision. He was in constant need. Who will deliver me? And he knew the answer, didn't he? Indeed, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 9 and 10, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. Listen to this. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He delivered me from sin initially. He's going to deliver me from sin the next time I need it, and the next time I need it, and the next time I need it. And And praise God that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Is that right? Do you believe that? Jesus gave Himself for our sins to deliver us From the present age, according to the will of our God and Father. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus knows the world that you live in. He knows it's constantly pulling you away from Him. He said, I want to deliver you from that. How many times, Jesus? As many as it takes. As often as it takes. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption The forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. He delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to listen to lifelong slavery. You're subject to it and I'm subject to it, to lifelong bondage if we don't turn to Jesus again. So are you ready this morning, perhaps for the first time or perhaps for the 550th time, I don't know, to turn to God for what you desperately need. How much bondage are you willing to endure before you realize that through Christ you are more powerful than your oppressor? I want you to picture those early Israelites being oppressed by a nation of Egyptians who were afraid of them. And I want you to realize that Satan is afraid of you Not because you have any power, but because He knows if you ever realize that Christ is in your life and that Christ will answer the call for deliverance, if you ever turn around and grab that whip, He's just got to run. And that's why the Bible says you resist the devil and he will what? Fight you? No, He's not going to fight you. He will flee from you. James chapter 4 verse 7. Turn around this morning and grab that whip. And turn your eyes to God and ask for deliverance again. As Christians, we are in constant need, just as Israel always was, for constant deliverance from the sin that, as the Hebrew writer says, clings so closely. Does it cling closely to you like it does to me? It clings. It's always there. So this morning, I want to encourage you. I don't know what it needs to look like. It may be a a silent prayer that you pray right now. It may be going home and talking to your family. It, it, It may be responding this morning, coming to this front pew and asking for prayers. It may be a private conversation with one of the brothers or sisters after worship is over. I don't know how you need to pursue that deliverance. But I beg you, and God does as well, do not remain in bondage this morning. Whatever it is you've been tricked into doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, don't remain in that situation when there is deliverance available. We are Israel, aren't we? We struggle still with the same things that they struggle with if we're honest about it. But we can only receive deliverance when we seek it. When we admit our situation and we turn our hearts to God. So if we can help you in any way this morning, please let us know as we stand and sing.